Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. The Medicine Path podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicinepath or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with Rick Jarrow. Now, I don't want to get into how I was introduced to Rick's work or why I wanted to talk with him here because we speak about it in the interview. But let me just say that Rick has an extensive resume as a spiritual seeker and practitioner, as well as being a teacher, writer, and scholar of Indian languages and literature. And Rick is also well known for being the founder of the anti-career movement and his work on the alchemy of abundance. So if you're interested in areas of career life's purpose, and integrating your work and spiritual life, I highly recommend Rick's books and audio programs, which you can find on his website, rickjarrow.com. That's R-I-C-K-J-A-R-O-W.com. Now, in this conversation, Rick shares with us some highlights from his long spiritual journey meeting and learning from teachers like Hilda Charlton, the Cuban shamanic healer Orestes Valdez, the famous Ram Dass, and also someone kind of close to my heart, the Brazilian musician and ayahuasquero Carioca Freitas. Now, this leads us into a quite frank and open discussion around cultural appropriation and the potential dangers 
for Westerners exploring spiritual traditions from other cultures. I really enjoyed this conversation with Rick, and I'm hoping to have him on again to dive into some of the other areas that we share a common interest, such as archetypal psychology, astrology, bhakti yoga, and right livelihood. So I'd love to hear what you think. Please feel free to make a comment if you're listening to this on YouTube. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Or you can send me an email at hello at brianjames.ca. You might also be interested in another podcast that I've started recently called Soul Studies with Brian James, where I share readings from some of my favorite authors in the realm of spirituality and depth psychology. You can find a link to those episodes at my website, brianjames.ca, or you can search Soul Studies with Brian James wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, that's all for now. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Rick Jarrow on The Medicine Path. All right. All right. I'm here with Rick Jarrow. So, Rick, um, I heard you not too long ago on Sylvia Nakasha's podcast, uh, I believe it's called Beyond Music or Beyond Sound. And I wasn't familiar with your work before, but of course, when I was listening to you, I was like, oh, man, here's a guy who is a a fellow seeker um, who's been on his journey for a while longer than me and he's interested in a lot of the same things and I just uh I always get excited when I hear somebody like you talk about their journey and what you're into and um it's always kind of inspiring to me to meet folks like you so like my next move is to reach out to you and see if I could have a conversation with you and here we are but like we were talking about before we started recording um We've got a lot of like common interests. You've got a really wide breadth of experience in different areas, astrology, uh, all of your work around the alchemy of abundance and the anti-career movement, yoga. And so there's like a lot of kind of ways into a conversation with you. But I really enjoyed hearing some of uh, your early story and your journey and meeting some of the teachers who have been important to you along the way. And I thought, you know, that'd be great to share that with my audience because maybe they um, are unfamiliar with your work. And uh, we all love to hear these kind of like spiritual journey stories, I think, you know. Well, I I, I guess. I don't know. Um, you know, there was um, a wonderful teacher in India named Ramesh Balsakar, who was a student of uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj, the I am that kind of irascible yogi before he was supposedly enlightened he was a cigarette maker mm-hmm. and after he was enlightened he was a cigarette maker so <laughs> what's the you know why, there's no place to go why should i do anything else but <laughs> ramesh used to say something very interesting to me um he used to say no matter what no matter where you've been no matter what you've done no matter what's happened there's no point in feeling bad or good about it because it could not have been otherwise. Mm. 
So, you know, when I was, quote, you know, in the journey, of course, it's your heavy melodrama, you know, but from the perspective I'm at now, kind of, it just, it could not have been otherwise. And right. I, I, for me, the whole process has been and continues to be um, really opening to trust the flow, you know, complete trust in the flow. That's, that's it. Um, like, you know, in my generation, I was part of the, um, I don't know what you call us, hippies, yippie, you know, rebellion. And, and um, the, you know, it's interesting right now because in my time as a young person, young human, the myth that got destroyed, uh, the myth of like the pristine greatness of America got destroyed with the Vietnam War. Hmm. And, and now I see it happening again um, because, you know, people have so many ideas about what is. So my, my insight, and it was, it was, um, you know, I was in a lot of pain and looking for something that was real and all that stuff. And I was, uh, I was a student at Harvard um, and I walked into a classroom one day and I, cause I was in the hallway and I heard this voice and the voice attracted me. So I walked into the classroom and it was a tape recorder. In those days we had tape recorders and who was on that tape recording, but Ram Dass. And <laughs> he was talking about, he'd just come back from India and it was the beginning. He was talking about yoga and chakras and, and it's just like a light went off. Like I've been, I've been waiting to hear this my whole life. That, that moment, um, I, I say, was my <clears throat> rebirth, if you will. Hmm. Well, and it, can I can I ask what you're doing at Harvard in the first place? I was a student. I was a first year student. Yeah, but what were you interested in studying? You know, I didn't know yet. I was looking at everything. I was looking at psychology, literature, religion. I was okay. already studying a lot of Indian religion, you know, but I didn't know. Hmm. And um, <clears throat> interestingly, um, I was with Ramdas about five years ago, which might've been a couple of years before he passed. Mm. And I told him the story. I said, you know, I listened to these tapes and I bought them and I listened to them every single day for months, you know? Um, mm. And um, I, I listened to the tapes um, and then I go out and drive a cab uh, and to make money to go to India. That was my thing. And Ramdas asked me, um, you have a relationship with Maharaji, who's his guru, you know, Neem Karoli Baba. And I said, well, I have a relationship with you. <laughs> and um, as we were finishing up that conversation, he, he just looked at me, he said, those tapes, those tapes are Maharaji. So mm. it's kind of a transmission, you know, and that, yeah. that set me out. Um, I knew from an early age that I was going to leave America. I just knew. Hmm. And um, I was heartbroken with what I saw around me and with the lives I saw people capitulating to. So I drove a cab, made some money and went to India. That's the yeah. short story. Um, ran into a lot of uh, good people in India and found out that I really resonated with India. It wasn't just a romantic dream. I liked the food. I liked the, the dust. I liked everything there. 
On the other hand, a very good friend of mine who um, leads various medicine ceremonies and now lives in his house for a while, he, when he was 23 years old, he met Ramesh Balsakar and Ramesh said, what are, you, what are you doing in India? And he said, I've come here to get enlightened. And Ramesh looked at him and said, no, you didn't. <laughs> he said, what am I here for then? He said, you're here because you're not comfortable with everything and everyone. Mm. And that's kind of been the journey. Uh, for a while, I was ready to follow some of my expat friends and throw my passport in the Ganges and declare myself dead, become a whatever, a wandering sadhu. I did that for a while. But I ran into completely, again, this trust, this spontaneity. I literally, literally ran into a book in someone's house. And it was, a, it was a piece, it was actually an article or a piece of something that Jung had written. And, and he was talking about the need to go through your own cultural tradition. And uh, when I read that, I got quite angry which was a good sign that something was up, you know, it, it struck a nerve. Mm -hmm. Because I knew the Bhagavad Gita, I, I'd studied Sanskrit, I continued that later on, but I didn't know Shakespeare, Homer, and the Bible. And, and suddenly I had a, a yearning to understand the culture I was born into. So I came back to the U.S. and um, basically went to college, we went to Columbia, where I, I created my own major in quote English slash they called it in those days Oriental studies. That's no longer a politically correct term. Now it's Asian studies. But uh, and I, I was basically studying uh, Western writers who had been influenced by India. And uh, but along the way, I ran into some remarkable beings who I spent a lot of time with. Uh, one was a woman uh, who they called her Electric Swami but her name was Hilda Charlton mm -hmm. and she was an adept. Uh, she lived in India for close to 30 years and she had a spiritual unaffiliated, unorganized spiritual community in New York city. And every Thursday night on the upper West side in St. John, the divine's cathedral, she gave classes, which were free she called them lessons of life. She was channeling from uh, the tradition of the, the White Lodge, the masters of the White Lodge and doing her thing. And you'd have three, 400 people show up every Thursday night. Wow. And uh, it, it was remarkable. And it was also like her, her meeting served as a gateway. Any yogi, any teacher who came to New York always stopped at Hilda's. You know, she gave a platform to anyone and everyone. Is this, uh, sorry to pause, this is in the 80s she was really yeah. active? Yep, yeah. late, mid-70s to late 80s. Mm -hmm. And um, what I really resonated with about her was her eclectic nature. She was open to everything. Um, you know, when she was coming into her, on her own journey, she met some of these very highly thought of yogis, Yogananda, Sai Baba, and they all wanted her to stay at their place, become the mother of their ashram, you know, the good woman. And she always said no, you know, and I really appreciated that. Like she blazed a trail. And so I, I studied very closely with her for, for many years. Um, she tolerated the fact that I had an intellect and went to Columbia. Uh, 
she used to say to me once she would once I walked into her house, she lived in the Upper West Side, very modest apartment. Bunch of people lived there as well. I walked in there, she looked at me, she said, Let me see your eyes, kid. And she looks at my eyes, she says, You have universities in your eyes. I liked you better when you were driving a cab. You know, it was this kind of <laughs> wow. very hands-on tantric type of teacher. Very well, powerful. Yeah, I there's uh there's uh, I mean, I've only been able to ever find one video of her because I've heard, uh, I think Ram Das, I think, has talked about her <clears throat> in the past. Um, so she's kind of a legendary figure in that New York scene. Yeah. Um, but I found one video of her, and it's not one of her classes, but she's coming in on like an interfaith me- meeting. Right, and I know that. Offering, yeah. And it might be in the same St. John yeah, the divine church, but uh, and she struck me. I was actually surprised. I expected someone who was quite um, intellectual, uh, like some kind of like socialite, like um, someone like an Indra Devi or something like that, right? But she seemed to me very kind of natural, spontaneous. She didn't have, uh, I don't know, her presentation wasn't like super polished, it was very off the cuff, and I thought. Well, how what an interesting thing to um, have someone like that be so popular. Like she obviously must have had some mojo, but in today's day and age, there's so much focus on presentation. Uh, a lot of teachers speaking through YouTube and Instagram and things, and everything is so polished. The language is so refined. It's like people are thinking in complete uh, paragraphs, and I just I was struck by that contrast. And I wondered if she could have existed now or if that was just that she was a you product know, of that time and that openness she had no desire for popularity her whole thing was vibrational and if you resonated with the vibration you know you hang out with her um but she was very as you said she was down to earth she she taught a spirit you know how do they say it head in the clouds feet on the ground Mm-hmm. So when I, the first time I met her personally, you know, I had like an interview with it, with her. She said, she called everybody kid. And she said, what do you want, kid? And I said, well, Hilda, I, I'm 20 something. Hilda, I just want God. <laughs> and she said, she pointed me on my career path. She said, well, that's very nice, kid, but what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know, Hilda. I just want God. I think I was, had a push cart selling peanuts on 45th Street in downtown Manhattan. And she just stand back and looked at me and she said, you're going to be a professor of Sanskrit. <laughs> Whoa, which came to pass, you know. Hmm. But more than that, um, her, you, how can you be functional and spiritual at the same time? And that set me on my, quote, anti-career work, because in those days, most of the, quote, spiritual people I knew were not functional. And most of the functional people I knew were not spiritual. And who mm-hmm. said these things have to be separate? So she kind of modeled that uh, for me and, um, and for many of us. Um, and, and one other beautiful thing with Hilda, she could really see people's potential and she'd point you in that direction. She'd, it wasn't her agenda. Don't, it wasn't join my community or my lineage. You know, this is what you can be, you know, go out and, and do it. So I hung out with Hilda for a long time, and you might be interested in the next one. Every once in a while, we'd have someone come through who was really, I think the lingo was strung out. 
skitzed out, drugged out, you know, in a very bad shape. And Hilda would say, we've got to take him to Orestes. And I always wonder, who is this Orestes character? And it took me a couple of years, but one day I was in the right place at the right time, and I met him. And Orestes Valdez was, uh, we would call him today, a Cuban shamanic healer who uh, lived in Union City, New Jersey. He looked like a, a, a very burly truck driver. Uh, he had what's called a botanica, which was a Cuban like store where they sell little artifacts. Mm -hmm. But in the back room, he had on the wall, he had a table and a crucifix on the back of the wall and a bowl of water. And he put you in there and he put your head on the bowl of water and start telling you all kinds of things about yourself. Hmm. Um, so when I first met him, you know, I put my head in the bowl of water and he, he, he had a beautiful accent. He looked at me, he said, Mr. Say, you have a blind man in your aura and I'm going to get him out. And I, I thought that was interesting because I'd had eye issues and I was fearful of blindness and I attributed to some past life. And he, he laid me on the ground and took out a razor, alcohol, and cotton. They said, oh, shit, what's, you know, what's this guy going to do? He never touched me physically. He did a psychic operation, I guess. And I went home and slept for three days. So uh, Hilda and Orestes became my go-to people. I'd go to Orestes two days a week, and we worked, taught us how to work with people. And I'd get Hilda's house whenever I could, and... She had her Thursday night meetings with 350 people, but she had her Friday night meetings that you had to be get permission to come. Mm -hmm. But what's the end of that story with the Orestes? So after the three days, you sleep for three days, you wake up. I, I wake up. I didn't. I I, I felt fine. I, I you know I and I I felt fine. Um, I can't. I I did have uh, one more eye issue in my life about 10 years later, but nothing, nothing else. Mm. Um, but you, you don't know what could have happened had what, you not, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what he did, but you know, I, again, I was really attracted, you know, who is he? I was so, you know, so I wound up spending a lot of time with him and he, he healed using or working with perhaps a better word, different levels of spirits. So he had African spirits, he had Indian spirits, he had these spirits, special spirits for artists, this, this realm he called Regando Flores, the land of the flowers. Hmm. And he would, he would bring down these energies and basically clean you off. Uh, and he was also like um, the first workshop I ever gave in my life, um, sometime in the 80s, um, the next morning, I was I could hardly walk. I, I something was wrong, so I called out. I said, "Get over here!" and puts puts me in a chair. Say, "Mister, what happened to you?" I said, "I don't know. That's why I'm here." <laughs> and he looked. He was this big man, but he had very delicate hands. And he said, "He said that there was a dead, the dead grandfather of one of the people in the workshop had jumped onto my aura. That was his diagnosis." Hmm. He cleaned me off and got me, you know, got me, and I was fine. So he did stuff like this. Um, we had someone who in our community who we brought to him who had um, been paralyzed by spinally by doctors messing up an operation, basically. 
So she could not walk. She was lying. So they brought her in on a stretcher. And I remember him standing over her and yelling, yo poeta, yo poeta, you know, I can do it. I can do it. And that's 30 years ago or even more. And now she, she teaches at Columbia. She's married. She walks, you know, with a cane. It's amazing. Um, And so Orestes was a santo, um, santeria tradition in the Afro-Caribbean community. But he also had a lineage in what's called Palo Mayambe, which is the very heavy, like, Hilda would take people to Orestes when it was a last resort. Like, they were so deep in whatever shit they got themselves into that Orestes was like the one person who could, he could deal with black magic, he could deal with all kinds of Mm. stuff. In fact, one year, I was going to India, uh, as I did a lot, and I was afraid that my father, my father was quite sick, and I was afraid he would die if I, when I was gone, and I didn't want that. So I didn't know what to do. Should I go to India? Should I stay here? So I asked Orestes, and he said to me, he said, don't worry, Mr. Rick, I'll take care of your papa. And he, he gave me a shell, and he put stuff in it. I don't know what's in it, but he, it was, he cemented it over. And he just said, keep this shell, keep this with you wherever you are. And I kept it the whole time I was in, in India, about nine months. I came back to New York, it immediately vanished, you know, didn't need it anymore. But, we, you know, we, and we can talk about shamanism and spirit work and all this. But what I really got from Orestes more than anything, he modeled for a lot of us what it was to be, um, how to say, a loving man. Mm. A male, a, a male figure who had their hearts open, mm-hmm. but still male. You know, he still. Um, you know, when Hilda was in the glory of the light, she worked from the heart chakra up. You know, she was divine mother. She was in luminosity. Orestes, he was right on the earth. He'd tell me, babe, we talk about the NBA championships, you know, and then he'd go and do this amazing work, mm. and. Um, it was a beautiful exchange uh, with him. And so I basically uh, stayed with both of them for almost uh, 10 years until, interestingly enough, they both left the earth around the same in the same year, 1988. Hmm. And that's when I got kicked out of the nest. That's when I had to start working and doing whatever I do. Um, but one other thing which might be helpful in terms of my path, both Hilda and Orestes, were what uh, Carl Jung would call pure intuitives. You know, Hilda didn't need to read books. She got, you know, everything just came right down to her. In fact, uh, there were some nights a word would come and, sh- and she'd pronounce it and mispronounce it. We'd have to look it up and see what's coming through. Um, but I was not a pure intuitive. I, ha- I had this mind and I had to do something with it. And I, I was not comfortable doing hands-on healing work, just not my total thing, or I would not be comfortable as a psychotherapist because I'm, I'm a, like an air sign. I don't have that much water in my chart mm-hmm. where I'm going to get in there, slog it out with people two, three days a week. Get in the soup, like Jung would say. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I gravitated toward astrology because it's it, it has a mental component but a healing component and you can work with people which i wanted to do but i didn't have to see them every day every week i could see them once or twice a year that worked for me and um it makes sense so 
Yeah, and just to show you how beautiful Orestes was, one night, you know, we'd work for a few hours and take a break. And when I was working with Orestes at that time, I was going to graduate school at Columbia, uh, studying Indian languages and literatures and comparative literature. So during the break, I would study, I'd open my books and read. And someone said to Orestes, well, he, you know, he shouldn't be doing that. Rick's breaking the energy, you know. Um, and Orestes said, no, no, no. He said, that's what Mr. Rick does. And he said, he say, everybody has their own river. You have to swim in your own river. If you swim in someone else's river, you drown. So the thing I got mm-hmm. from both Hilda Charlton and Orestes Valdez, they both, they swam in their own rivers they worked very differently, but they had great respect for each other. It was very beautiful to see. Um, and they were both, uh, they weren't into creating massive personas about them being greater than God. They were both approachable people. Hilda, you know, a lot of people projected, uh, you know, incredible guru images onto Hilda. But one reason I was able to get so close to her so quickly is because I lived in India. I'd been through that story already. And I didn't need it. You know, I could just see, you know, just be with her. And I think she appreciated that. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was like my formation. And um, Orestes, it was working with people and feeling what's going on um, psychically. And Hilda was about not just going into higher realms of meditation, but how to bring it down and make effective things happen in the world. Mm. So one more story. One day I was driving my cab. I drove all night and I found myself early in the morning, like 10 in the morning, right by Hilda's apartment. And as things happen, a parking space just opened up. So I parked and knocked on the door and she brought me in and she put me in this two hour like Shiva meditation and she could take you out into the absolute. I was so, so two hours later, like I come down, I'm here and I'm like, I can, you know, I'm trying to reintegrate. And all of a sudden I have a thought. I said, what what am I going to do? You're supposed to, you have to book a certain amount of money every day when you drive a cab. And um, I said, Hilda, I didn't book any money. What am I going to do? And (laughs) she had this very Shakti in her voice, you know, and she just looked at me and she said, don't worry about money, kid. Boom, that was it. And in, in the next hour, I made as much money as I usually make in a whole day driving the cab. It was really extraordinary. And I said, whatever juju this is, whatever it is, I'm hanging out with her. Mm-hmm. In the early, well, we, just to go back to finish your thread, in the mid-70s, Hilda Ramdas and uh, a woman known as, later known as Jaima Bhagavati, Joya, they, had a, they, they were doing, they had a program together. They were doing classes together in New York City. Mm. So... Yeah, that those were the you know that was like my formation. Uh, funny to meet these kinds of people in New York. Well, yeah, I mean, I know some other folks from your generation who grew up in New York, and you know, my kind of understanding of New York at that time, you know, I was focused on like the punk music scene and the you know no new wave scene and all that stuff and the art scene and meeting people like, um, like Laraji, who you oh, might yeah, have no. run into my friend. friend. Yeah. Yeah. My friend Killian Ganley too. He's uh, <clears throat> born and raised in New York and, 
And just hearing about this kind of underground uh, spiritual scene there, too, is equally exciting to me as all of the art and music stuff that was going on. It's really amazing. Yeah, it was, it was it, figure ground, you know, you never know what's under your feet until it's it's time to, to see. Um, Hilda was like, but she, you know, she was very sweet in her meetings with 400 people. But if you went to her smaller class, only 50 people, you know, we had to be invited. She was tough as nails. The first one I ever went to, I was sitting inconspicuously in the middle of nowhere. And she tells everyone, okay, now we're going to meditate. And I, I didn't even know she knew I was there. And I swear, all I did was this. I just scratched my nose for a second. And she stopped all things. She pointed about me. She said, you. So we don't move here. We don't scratch. When you meditate, we go in. And that was like my initiation with, uh, with Hilda, you know. Um, Did you ever run across uh, Eugene Krishnamurti? Do you know him? Like the Krishnamurti? Or different? No, there's J, Jiddu Krishnamurti, oh, yeah. and then there's UG, and they both were kind of picked out by the theosophists to be world teachers, and so they were, were kind of raised up together, but then they had a split. I see. I, I am familiar with and I have met Jay Krishnamurti. Hmm. Well, UG had, you know, when people talk about meeting him and he, he didn't want to be a world teacher, but people came to him and all that, invited him to, you know, Switzerland and things. But uh, people would talk about him having this quality in his voice, too. And they, they called it getting blasted by UG, where right, he would just yeah. point out, you know, your, your weak spot or that yeah. thing that you didn't want to reveal. And he would just blast you. And that yeah. was his way. Yeah, I, I was, uh, here's a good one. I was once in Hilda's living room when this yogi from the Himalayas came. He was visiting New York. Of course, Hilda's a big stop. And I, I had actually met him in the Himalayas. I knew who he was. And he was beautiful. Like he was in his 40s, maybe had long black hair and a long red dress and a crystal mala around his neck, you know. And Hilda, you know, very, oh, Swami, how are you? Look at him. And, and all of a sudden she looks at him. And she says, you know, Swami, that's a nice mala you got there. She said, I bet you the girls really like that mala. And, and he literally, he literally collapsed. You know, he blasted. And I, I think she saved him. You know, he was sick for five days. But she put the finger right where, you know, right there. And, uh, and, and. Oh. And a friend of mine who was there at the time said, you know, she must have had some karmic connection with him because normally Hilda would never say anything to anyone unless there was an acknowledgement of the relationship. So she must have had some relationship with him because you know, she, she gave him a lot of Shakti that day. <laughs> right. So she wouldn't just go around blasting people on the street. No. no. There had to be in relationship. Yeah. 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 Wow, sounds like a really amazing woman. And Orestes, too. I mean, he reminds me, you talking about him and doing that diagnosis and everything reminds me of a guy I met in the Amazon, a tabacero, who's a, like a big, strong martial artist. But he would take you in this little closet and pitch black, he would light up a giant cigar and blow smoke on you and right, do right. his diagnosis that way. Yeah. And like, like him, I just... Whatever was going on, I have no idea, but he told me something and he gave me a prescription, something to do when I went home, having to do with drinking the juice of green bananas for seven days. And I just, I was like, I'm just doing it. I don't know. There's something about this guy. 
Yeah. I did it and I, um, I'm not dead. So who knows, right? right? Like with the blind man in your aura, who knows you could have lost your sight by now. I, I, yeah. And I could have uh, actually. So, um, but isn't it just kind of like making life more interesting to go along as if with some of these things too, you know, you know, that's a really interesting. I think what you're getting at, um, one interesting thing I like particularly about, you know, everybody has, unconscious belief systems but at least both hilda and orestes they weren't throwing their belief systems at you they weren't asking you to believe anything um in fact orestes in all the years i worked with him he never taught anybody anything in a formal way he just say he say mr like we work on people people would come and he diagnose them he'd put them in the center of a circle and he'd have a few of us come work on him and he said he'd say like mr rick use your indian and I had no idea what the <laughs> fuck he was talking about, you know, but I played along, as you said. And then, and the person said, well, how did you know to touch me there? And I said, I didn't. So I, that both of them got me more comfortable with not knowing, mm. but trusting the process. So when he'd say, use your Indian, was he saying like, do some of your mantra that you've learned no. or... Um, he had a realm of we would call now Native American spirits. And he'd asked me to access that realm and bring it through. Hmm. Interesting. And what would your response be? Would you consciously try to connect to something or? Yeah, well, he actually, you see, he did teach us some stuff, just not formally. There was actually a visualization we used of, um, an Indian medicine healer known as Savah, who lived, who stood by a waterfall <clears throat> somewhere on the ash, and he'd just say, go there and, and feel that energy. So I would just do it. I'm not, you know, it was interesting. When I first met Hilda, you know, she was into seeing angels and this and that. And I said, Hilda, when I meditate, I don't see anything. You know, uh, what's wrong with me? <laughs> and she, she said, kid, what do you feel? Oh, I said, I feel lots of things. I feel this, I feel that. And she said, okay, go in with your feeling. And eventually the site will open up. And that's what happened. You, you go in with what you have. So I would just feel the different realms, the African realm, the Indian realm, the realm of the flowers, uh, with, uh, with Oreste's guidance. Hmm. And um, that's kind of how he did it. He's doing like an archetypal psychology. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. and, you know, transpersonal psychologists would call this archetypal, I don't know what, imagistic projections. And Orestes would call it, these are your, the spirits around you. And I don't need to call it anything. I don't need to define it. I, um, I just need to acknowledge the existence and to work with it. And that's kind of how, that's what's worked for me. Yeah, I hear you. Just go with go with it. Um, uh, you know, you had this moment where you you read that thing by Jung back then that said, yeah. "Get into your own tradition. You got to go right. through it." Right. And then you end up becoming a, a Sanskrit scholar, a professor of religion at Vassar. Yeah. <laughs> teaching like Indian 
religion, well, I think, right? And yes and tell, no. So tell me about, like, how did you follow up on Jung's yeah. directive to go well, through your own tradition? What I did was I, I wanted, the reason I wanted to learn Sanskrit so badly, because I'm not very good at languages, but I was determined to learn this because I had grown to distrust the words of many of the yogis who had come from India to America. Uh, I felt that they were only giving one slice of the pie, mm-hmm. not the pie. And I, the only way I can know the pie is if I could read the language of the text myself. So that's what I did. But I studied compared like Westerners who were influenced by India and how they worked out that influence. So I, I studied mm-hmm. people like Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, you know, American transcendentalists and so on and so forth. Comparative epic. So Jung was right in the middle of that. Yeah. And um, so I kind of was riding two horses. Like my, my degree is in, quote, index studies slash comparative literature. I did both. And I was determined not to go to one side of the fence or the other, but to kind of stay in the middle and see what would happen. And that's okay. basically what I've done. And uh, the nice thing about teaching at a place like Vassar for me has been after I, after I, you know, I established myself there, I was able to do anything I wanted. Mm-hmm. So I give seminars in dreams. I give seminars in the healing traditions of India and China. I even give a, co- a course called the Celestial Sphere on the astrological archetypes, mm-hmm. all within the rubric of a religion department. Oh, that's so fun. So... <laughs> Are, are you like so when you're um, creating your curriculum for that year or different courses? Are you kind of just following like what you're interested in at that time and using like the teaching as a vehicle for you to go deep into absolutely. that? Or? Absolutely. If I want to learn something, go deeper into something, I'll teach it as a course. That's like off Broadway for me, and really mm-hmm. learning, seeing what works, what doesn't work, and and can, can I read this, read that? Yeah, it's a great exploration, and that's what I've done. Oh, what a fantastic career. I mean, this just sounds like you found the perfect uh, job for who you are. I, I, well, I would agree with you, except for one thing. I did not find it. And that to me is crucial. Uh, it was given to me. Uh, I could, you know, I could list like 10 amazing synchronicities that, you know, there's no way this could happen. So I wasn't trying to carve out a career in academia. I was just Mm. listening to spirit. Okay. And like, I never decided to go to Vassar. I was a graduate student at Columbia and they got a message from these classics professors at Vassar wanted to learn Sanskrit and they were looking for a teacher. And I was (laughs) a graduate student and I, but I lived close to Vassar. I was already in the Hudson Valley. So they called me and, I wound up teaching Sanskrit, you know, reading with classics professors for two years. And the next thing I know, Vasa offered me a, you know, a temporary job. And that was 20 some odd years ago. So it just, it, yeah. it, it happened. Mm-hmm. And I was, you could call, whatever it was, um, I allowed it to happen, but I didn't try to, I never sat down visualizing an academic job. Yeah, this wasn't like the culmination of your five-year plan or something. Yeah, nothing like that at all. So would you say, like, so for people who, because a lot of people that I talk to in my work and my wife, too, she's an astrologer. One of the 
primary things that comes up for people is like, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? So would you say that like along the way, what you're doing is like just one step at a time following that, uh, that desire or attraction towards something and just taking it one step at a time and trusting? Yes. Yes. But, uh, the, the, the nice thing that astrology teaches is that yes, we're all one, but we're all different. Mm-hmm. So one individual might need to really activate their Mars. In other words, make a plan, have a goal, mm-hmm. because that's what they need to do. Someone else might not, might not need to do that at all. Um, in my own case, I have found that the great barometer of what I need to do in life uh, is around my pain. That if I listen to the pain... Um, and really become the student of where, and not only my pain, but the, the resonance I feel with pain in the world. Like I started doing the career stuff because I was already working as an astrologer, which is also given. I never decided I'm going to do this. And I noticed that so many people had a disconnect between their spiritual journey and their work life. And that's what pushed me into really investigating this. So yeah, whatever's Whatever's calling you, but the thing that's calling you, it doesn't have to be some grandiose vision. It could be your toe is broken. You know, it's whatever's really impinging on your awareness. That's what's pushing you to, you know, to investigate. And that generally supports you. That's my understanding that when you're really true to what's going on inside of you, the universe supports you because that's what you're supposed to be doing. Hmm. But if, if you wait to know, you're going to be waiting forever. It's like waiting till you perfect something. Never happens. Yeah, right. Yeah, and for anyone listening who is kind of struggling with this, I recommend checking out Rick's books. Be, and he's got audio courses on this topic too, uh, his whole anti-career movement. He's done so much work over the years. And I I love the approach too. And my wife started reading your book and she digs it because it uses astrology and the chakras as a model for figuring yourself out and finding your path. You know, just, just just a good example. When I was trying to put the book together, I shopped it to a couple of publishers and they said, well, this is great. All you have to do is take out the, take out the chakras and we'll publish it. (laughs) And I said, wait, wait a second. I am chakras. Like that's what I, and so I I really stuck with my, what, what, what spoke to me. So, yeah. Um, on the other hand, just one other thing, and I think this is this segues into a lot of stuff that you're doing. Um, when I first did Creating Work You Love and the Ultimate Anti-Career Guide, which is the Sounds True program, that was the 90s. And, in, and at that time, I was still conceptualizing vocation and work as an individual journey. Now I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it much differently. I'm seeing that more important or at least as important as any individual journey is connecting with the right community. It's, it's from the community that your life work emerges. Mm-hmm. So the, there are three questions I'll ask people in any career counseling session. One, and one is, you know, what's your community? Who's your community? Who are the people you resonate with? Um, the other is what do you think's really going on here? Which is a nice way of saying, what's your religion? Um, and, and another one is, is uh, who, are the, who are the people alive or dead who you really admire? I find those are all really empowering ways to get into what you can do.
Mm. Yeah, kind of uh, like James Hillman would talk about, you got to find out like what tree you're on, like what's your spiritual or soul lineage, uh, alive or dead. Um, And it starts to narrow things down in a way, right? Because like if I think like, well, I really am attracted to Hillman's work, well, then I I know I got to read Jung. I got to read some of the classics, Right. And so all of a sudden I've got a curriculum that's kind of there for me on that tree in a way. You know, yes, absolutely. And and and, and if you have a tree or or you want a tree, don't be shy. So I, I've always considered like uh James Hillman to be one of the people who actually, for want of a better word, got me into academia. Because I can understand, you know, he finally, if someone was speaking a language that I understood, that I resonated with. Hmm. And so I decided at one point, this was a few, you know, number of years later, but I wanted to bring Hillman to Vassar. And um, it was, you know, I reached out and we went back and forth, but eventually he came and it was, Hmm. it was just beautiful um, to see, you know, people from, different, you know, different generations and different backgrounds kind of speaking about the same thing. Uh, Hillman and I did a, did a workshop for senior students. Like, what am I supposed to do with my life? And I was going on and on about, you know, processing and meditating and look at this, look at that. And Hillman came from a totally different angle. He said, he said, uh, what are people asking you to do? Notice what people are asking you to do. That's such a good question. So, yeah. And that's like your question about, um, you know, first you have to be kind of in a community and then, you know, you need the community in order to ask that question. Like, what does the community need? Like, what's the yeah. niche here that needs to be filled, that is right? That's so true because I, I have met in my life hundreds of people who are, they declare, and they might be brilliant, but they're living in attics or basements of the world complaining that the world doesn't recognize or understand them. Yeah, but they never made the effort to be understood. So, yeah, and and when I say community, I'm not just meaning a physical. I know most of us have multi communities, online communities, yoga. You know, there's so many different, and and they all work. But I do feel that the issue before us as a culture, particularly people who are born, uh, I, what do you call these people? Millennials, people who were born in like the mid '90s. Mm-hmm. They all have Uranus and Neptune conjunct in their charts. Uh, Uranus is the free individual and Neptune is merging into wholeness. So how can I be part of a community without losing myself? Mm -hmm. How can I honor myself and still be part of a community? This is like, because the communities that have owned people in the past were fascist. You know, whatever they call themselves, you do it our way or you're out. And and then you have, you know, people at Esalen or sitting on a rock at Big Sur all alone because I don't belong to anything or anyone. So uh, is there a way of of putting these things together? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I find, I, I don't know your experience, but for the last 10 years, I've done a lot of work with medicine communities um, part of them. And, um, you know, a lot of these people are so far ahead of where the mainstream is. It's ridiculous. Like at least the communities I'm a part of, 
race is no issue, language is no issue, gender is no issue, you know, everybody's there and everyone's participating. And I see this as a future which is on the radar of very few people, and maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. Why do you think that might be a good thing, that it's not on the radar of more people? Because because it gets to appropriation. The minute things demonstrate the potential to be capitalized upon, they are. And they often get diluted, and um, even worse, they get commodified. So um, I've seen people, um, you know, they go to medicine ceremonies, they don't have any real training or expertise, and the next thing you know... They're offering ceremonies, charging like $750 a night or something like that. And um, this is, this is um, the danger. So when I, I sat with uh, a number of years ago, uh, Carioca, uh, who is our, mm-hmm. you know, from Brazil singing shaman, he came to New York and we, he says something very beautiful. We were in a retreat center in the middle of nowhere. And he just said, you know, we don't need to advertise. He said, we're like the ancient Sufis. We're like the Sufis. You know, if we're, if you're meant to find us, you will. And I just, you know, and that to me is a lot of faith and confidence in your work. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a real, it's a real thin line. Um, should, you know, to what degree when these, when these practices enter into a Western economy, you know, how are they going to work? What's going to happen? It's, it's a big koan, I would say. Yeah, major koan, for sure. And I mean, the psychedelics, plant medicine work, you know, the mainstream has noticed and has picked it up and is commodifying it in a big, big way. And even, I mean, creating a whole... Uh, realm of therapy now so then you've got this kind of pyramid scheme so if i want to be a psychedelic therapist i gotta to go to ciis or right exactly and it's become a whole industry now and i see so many people that want to like get ahead of the legislation and so they're already working their way up that pyramid and uh man i'm like uh, my uh this, this uh, <laughs> yogi in india once in, in rishikesh i was at his ashram he was complaining he said these westerners come they want they want to know how long how much does it cost and how long does it take yeah right exactly but i gave my guru body speech in mind you know you know even and i know he's a, he is a great journalist i, I I'm, I'm not disparaging his work but even someone like michael pollan who wrote the book on you know this how to change your mind and psychedelics I see that as a, as a book with a very heavy agenda. Uh, and to me, the agenda of that book is to try to validate psychedelics for, scientific, for scientists and for yeah. mainstream research. So he leaves out the entire spiritual, you know, he talks about Timothy Leary for like 25 pages and Ramdas for maybe one sentence. Totally. Mm-hmm. And, and how to change your mind yeah. instead of like how to change your heart. Or, exactly. Right? Exactly. And I, I, I'm very, um, I'm very concerned. Um, I call it. I, 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 I have nothing against science, but scientism is a new religion. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been a religion for a while, but I think where it's leading us. In fact, even Pollen in one of his journeys that he talks about he winds up in a tron like you know um virtual reality virtual reality with no no heart and it's true a computer can 
beat a, a modern chess champion. You know, Watson, IBM, but the, but the computer doesn't know that it's playing chess. So are we going to sacrifice consciousness and soul for efficiency and efficacy? I think this is one of the, the choices before us. And um, it's, to me, it's, it's quite scary. Um, I'm living in an historical consciousness, if you will, of, you know, thousands of years. We've had, we've had mass extinctions before. The Mayans talk about six extinctions. We've had Atlantis. You know, um, are we going that way again? Um, I don't know, but I, I do feel that the appropriation of part of the tradition without the whole is, you know, I even had one day for some reason, uh, I was asked, this ambassador's, you know, at least it once was a cool place because I was asked to give a talk about my various psychedelic experiences, you know, which I had in my 20s. And one student said, like, why should I bother like with plants and processing them and praying over them? Why don't I just get, get an the injection? molecule? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, wow, man. And for me, the big lesson that I learned with karaoke, I didn't realize, you know, I thought I'd been through all this. And when I, the first time I worked with ayahuasca in, down in, in Brazil with karaoke, I understood that I, I was still not consciously, but I was still holding on to my American New York model mm -hmm. of I take drugs either to get high or to get knowledge. Mm -hmm. Whereas the, the, the medicine model is no, this is a prayer. And, and you're here in prayer and in service to the plants and to nature and to the universe. And that makes all the difference. And that's not understood. Uh, I heard about a, um, this guy in the army, a Native American guy, who badly broke his leg and the, the doctors couldn't do anything. So he asked if he could bring in the medicine man and they said, sure. So the, this medicine man made this clay poultice, put it on his leg, and a week later, his leg was fine. Uh, the uh, response of the doctors was to try to get the clay and analyze it chemically. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, um, well, you know, I think that's such a problem, whether we're talking about astrology, yoga, plant medicine, shamanism in general, is that part of the appropriation is we take what fits into the existing culture or into the existing mindset, and we leave out all the other stuff. Like, I've done some writing about, okay, if psychedelic psychotherapy is going to be a thing, well let's listen to people who have the most experience and think about some of the elements that are part of their medicine work that we could actually quite easily incorporate into work in the North, like live music with uh, sensitive, intuitive musicians who can respond to the situation and things like that. Right. And I just don't see that conversation happening at all. It's all like, let's create a one canned playlist put people in a blindfold with headphones on and hold their hand. You know, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky though. Cause uh, I think I'm not violating any comment. Karaoke, he deputized these two friends of mine to conduct ceremonies in North America. So they do it in New York. We have a church called the, it's called the, the living love circle church. And when karaoke was, you know, dep deputizing him and they, they sat for, you know, years with him. So he said, he said, 
I wonder what the circle the ceremony is going to look like in America. And they said, you mean it's not going to be the same? He said, no, you know, you have your own energy. It's, it's going to be different, but it's not going to, it doesn't violate the basic energy. And to me, like the tried and true reality here is, and this is what anyone would ask you in India anyway, um, Who's your teacher? Do you have a teacher? Is it, have you worked with someone? Not a book, not a recording. Have you worked? Have you spent time with someone? Um, when Gyanananda, who is my uh, mentor in Himalayas in India, he was born in Switzerland. When he was 20 years old, he walked to India. He walked from Switzerland. His mother was horrified. She wrote a letter to Jung and was live. And Jung said, don't worry, he'll come back. He never came back. He got to the border. This was, I guess, I don't know, 1930 or 40. He got to the border. They said, why are, you, why are you coming to India? He says, I'm here to be a sadhu. First question they asked him, do you have a guru? He said, yes. And they said, come in. So um, uh, working with somebody is the tried and true apprenticeship. And it's not, it's not necessarily sweetness and light. You know, there's, it's a lot of sandpapering on both sides. But I, 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 that's the first question. I, I would not, I would not want to sit with medicine with anybody who is not trained in a lineage. I'd be very suspect. Even though I, I see, you know, I used to sit in TP ceremonies with the Native American Church, and in many ceremonies that I've di- I've been into in the middle of the night, uh, arguments or discords, a better word, would break out between. Native Americans and whites. And generally, it's the Native Americans who pissed off at the whites for their ignorance and not taking seriously, you know, the practice in their ways. So finally, after a particularly difficult night, the, the roadman, who is the leader um, of the ceremony, who's Native, he said, look, he said, this is a Native American church ceremony. He says, Some people say that white people should not be allowed in the, in the teepee. But he said, what if my children or my children's children marry Americans or Canadians and they have children? Am I going to prevent my own people, my own flesh and blood from coming into the teepee because they're not full-blooded native? He said, no. He said, so as far as I'm concerned, anyone is welcome in the teepee as long as you respect our ways. And that's, that's the, you know, that's the key. And sounds easy, but man, you know, you have to learn, you have to learn the code. What's you know? I, I saw one guy who thought he was being respectful, so he took off his shoes before going into the teepee, and the roadman got infuriated. He said, "What do you think you're in your living room?" You know, so you got to really ask and listen and understand um, what the expectations are, and 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 then you know, once you learn the alphabet, maybe you can write poetry. I mean, definitely, you know appropriation is not necessarily an imperialistic um, mind, you know, heartless strategy. If it's also flattery. I mean, if you like what someone's doing, you're going to imitate. Um, just, can we do it? The big question is, um, can we do it with integrity? Uh, yeah, that's the question. Because if we take uh, any kind of appropriation just off the table if we have this really um, f- uh, fixed mindset that appropriation is bad 
Well, what are we as kind of displaced European people on North America for one or two or three generations? What are we left with at that point? I know from my my experience, I would have nothing. I would have nothing. And the um, the religious, spiritual tradition of my ancestors is as foreign to me as that of my Indian guru. Right, right. So we have to do something. Um, otherwise, we what we get is we get what we have in North America now, which is rationalist, materialist, uh, raping the earth, um, not treating people as human beings, right? We have all of the problems that we have that Jung could see coming a mile away. You, you and know, I he predicted know. it. Yeah, well, he already had it. Uh, I don't know if this is helpful or not uh, for anybody, but for me, for me, it's given me a little bit of breathing room, just a little. I, I have a vision of being in a longhouse uh, in in the North America with you know, native people and. And it's like a council going on and people are saying, like, what are we going to do? You know, these Europeans are coming. They're too many. They have too much firepower. You know, how can we, you know, what, what can we do? And one of the elders gets up and says, I, the only thing we could do is get born in their line and try to change them from within. Hmm. So, you know, to me, opening up this notion of what is the self, that the self is not the body, that you know we've had so many experiences that we can draw on so we're not just limited oh you're you're a western christian you can only do this no you your your sensibility might be very deep but if it is it'll probably find you like hilda when, when hilda was 15 years old she was meditating she was doing heavy pranayama in her room and this guy just appeared in the room astrally said stop so she stopped and about 15 years later, she's in uh, Mumbai, was in Bombay, in a taxi cab. And, you know, in India, the cab drivers often have pictures of their gurus on the, on the, um, yeah, the, the light. The mirror. Mirror, yeah. the front mm-hmm. rear view mirror. And she saw the picture on the mirror. Of the, That's the one who came to my room. She said, take me to that man. And it was Bhagwan Nityananda, this great Siddha who looked at Hilda and grunted. <laughs> he never said a word, he just grunted. And she went into samadhi and that was, that was it. <laughs> so lineages are, are, are subtle and, and complex and nuanced and... Um, and mysterious. Mysterious, so mysterious. Yeah. Like for me, growing up in a very secular, blue-collar environment and family... I was drawn to this Indian tradition as a kid. Like, there was no books. There's nothing on TV about this, but there's something about it. I remember the first time I saw, uh, they used to have these posters in Little India in Toronto, um, incredibly brightly colored, almost cartoonish depictions of the different Hindu deities. And I would buy them, like, and put them up like uh, rock stars on on my wall. You know, on one wall, there's, like, my guitar hero. And then on the other wall, there's Hanuman looking like this superhero. And I was transfixed by them. And it took me years to kind of find a yoga teacher at that time. It wasn't, you know, yoga wasn't a popular thing. Find my way to books, find my way to teachers and things like that. But... At, from the beginning, there was this this interest in in that, and I would say like shamanism too. This equal interest to the east and then to the south. 
Mm. This is something I actually wanted to ask you about what your thoughts were. So it seems to me that like a big part of your generation was this uh, influence of the East on the Western mind and the seeking of the Western mind toward the East. And what I think in my generation, which is like, you know, born in the early 70s, Generation X or whatever, it seems like there's been a real draw to learn from the South. Oh, definitely. I see that. I, I kind of even see this. There, it, to me, there was like a migration in the 80s. And yeah. the, the energy started coming from the South and from mm-hmm. the Earth. And, yeah. um, and, and yet, it's really interesting. Um, when I go to Brazil, um, I'm amazed that there are these syncretic medicine yo- slash yoga traditions that have grown yeah. up. Frame Baba, Chandra. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I really feel, uh, and I've heard this. I've heard stories about this, where you know, one one story is the the axis of whatever you want to call it, the fountain of knowledge, whatever you want to call it, is moving move from Tibet to the Andes or something like that. I, but I I feel that in the you know in the early part of the last or the latter part of the twentieth century, the energy from India was you know it was giving something that was missing in the West. And now the energy from the earth-based shamanic cultures is offering something that is missing in the West. Yeah. You're touching on like what I was feeling into when I was thinking about this. Um, so when we think about the East, it's always like the guru on top of the mountain. It's a kind of a spiritual ascensionist kind of movement, uh, very much like what Hillman would equate the intellect with this move towards spirit and what right. I've been feeling, and I mean, anyone who's gone down to the Amazon to drink ayahuasca knows it's about the chthonic, it's about the earth, it's about the mama, it's soul. Um, and so to me, it seems like, well, maybe this is a great balancing or a working toward wholeness that, that we're in the midst of right now. What do you I think? hope so. I hope so. You know, John Perkins popularized that the notion of the eagle and the condor. You know, yeah, right. I mean, together. Um, that's and one. ex and ex what Wall Street banker popularized right. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, become, least, yeah it's a bit of a fairy tale. Down there and work with people. Mm-hmm. The other one, the other thing about what you said though about um, just to be a lot of the teaching that came from India came from a particular strata of India that was resonant with British thinking. Yeah, even in the universities, um, until maybe <clears throat> even twenty years ago or so. Yeah, it was old, definitely biased toward the intellect and like Vivekananda. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. and there's a whole tradition. There are shamanic traditions in India and healing traditions in India and local traditions that are very powerful and that never get over here because of people wasn't on people's radar. Well, again, with the appropriation thing, like what are we attracted to what fits? And so at that time in the early 1900s, Vivekananda comes over and he's like, wow, he he speaks like uh, an Oxford scholar and he's very like clean and well-presented. He can speak to that Western mind and that Victorian mind. Right. But yeah. Meanwhile, there's this whole earthly shamanic dark goddess energy of like Kerala healing traditions and things like that. Right. 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 Exactly. That never made it over here because it was like, I don't know, not interesting to the Westerners. And so we had to go then south 
America, not South India, to get it. It's so strange. It's very interesting, yeah. Um, but that thing that you said, and I, I'm very sensitive to this because I'm I've gone through that trauma. By the grace of God, got out of it relatively early. But that thing about the guru at the top of the pinnacle, you know, that fit the whole Western hierarchical notion of life, and. <clears throat> Uh, Karaoke says something very interesting because Karaoke, he broke away at one point from the strict Santo Daimi definition. And he said, and and someone asked him, well, doesn't everyone have a, a, there, a, a place in the ceremony? Like, isn't there a specific place? And he said, yes, everyone does have their place in the ceremony, but you have to find it. No one can, no one can tell it, tell you. And, um, <clears throat> Uh, we, you know, as far as I'm concerned, like the era of gurus is over. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't work. There are two things that did not work in the West that came from India. One was autocratic gurus and the other was monasticism. Mm-hmm. Neither of them have worked well in the Western world. Um, and so um, we, we're kind of finding our own, you know, our own way of working. Yeah, I guess, hmm, yeah, what that brings up for me is, um, what do you see, because you're an eclectic person, I'm an eclectic person, I've gotten over any idea that I'm going to, you know, find my way back to the Greeks, to the origins of the Western civilization and all of that and find something that's quote unquote authentically Western. For me, I, I, I'm following my heart and following what in my gut feels like the right thing to do. And, and when I engage in other traditions, trying to approach them with all of that attitude of respect and humility and reverence, not trying to get something from them and all of that, right? But what do you think is, do you think that there could be something that emerges that could be a actually new uh, Western form of shamanism? I, I, I don't even know if it's going to be Western. It might be global. It's the rainbow warrior. Yeah, but you think that's the thing? I do. And But just to mm-hmm. go back one step, and I, I'm saying this tremendous respect for James Hillman. I mean, he's a teacher of mine. But his whole thing about finding the roots of Western civilization, going back to Greece, his father was a rabbi in Prague. I know, that's what... <laughs> totally denies that in his work, you know? I know, it's so strange, so, right? Like, that's his me. shadow yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting. When he came to Vassar, um, we were in a dream seminar, and he told us, like, he was kind of incredulous. He said, you know, last night, I dreamt about Ganesha. <laughs> what am I doing? You know? So... Um, I what, what did he do with that? Did that really? Mess I don't him know. Up? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Oh, that's great. But I do feel like if you study religions, I study religions, there's no such thing as a pure form of anything. Everyone's mixed and matched and syncretic since uh, the dawn of time. Yeah. So I, I think we're in the middle of an amazing process of birthing. Uh, new ways of of living and and worshiping and maybe not new but things that work for people here and the jury is out you yeah. know will they survive will they flourish the jury is out 
That was kind of my feeling too. I had this inkling, you know, I was, I was doing some research uh, into the Gnostics and the early Christians. There's a great book called um, Gnostic New Age that uh, mm-hmm. kind of goes through the whole timeline of development of Christianity and Gnosticism. Um, really illuminating for me. And I found a lot of like kinship with these Gnostics. Um, but what I was kind of thinking of was, Maybe because of globalism and the kind of communication that we have now, the sharing of information that's so easy, the ability to fly to the Amazon, like it's nothing, you know, um, maybe there's like some kind of non-localized new Alexandria that's happening where there's all of this opportunity for cultural exchange. Like, to me, the Brazilians just embody that. They'll syncretize anything. Like, it's like anything that works, let's put it together. And now we've got Santo Daime plus Umbanda. It's uh, Ubandaime, you know. And and that's a little too restrictive for karaoke. So he creates his own thing, but incorporates all of it. Right, incorporates all of it. My, my, the only caveat I have with the word you said was non-localized. Yes, we're sharing information in an unprecedented way. But, you know, you get all these guys, Elon Musk, um, Kurzweil, you know, the, the Google engineer, they all want to leave the earth and go to the moon or go to some other planet or live, you know, we're going to be virtual society. And I see that as the very old archetype of trying to get out of the earth. And I feel like somehow we need to be both local and universal, but, you know, acknowledge the local as well. And um, that, you know, uh, that requires community. I mean, how does this sound to you? I mean, this is very simplistic, obviously, but with all that's happening in the world the last couple of years, I, I'm, I'm looking at two very different paradigms. One is central control, um, authoritarian standards, uh, hierarchy and disembodiment. And, and the other is, is community eclecticism uh less work more play and and um yeah it's clear where um i'm standing but <laughs> Me too. um I, I it's it's kind of worrisome or concerns me how you know this this belief that oh we're just going to download our brain into a robot and you know live happily ever after it to me that's total Tor- horrifying illusion. And to learn, to relearn, like one of the reasons, like I'm so, like, like we have this really interesting karma that we're living on land that is not from our heritage. It's a native, and, and what do we do? And mm-hmm. Jung had this amazing statement and when he, and you know, living in Basel, Switzerland, he said he could always tell an American by the way they walk. Yeah, so they walk like Negroes. And, and red and red men, he said, they're black and red are incorporated into the walk of the Americans. And I think that's our, that may be our salvation. Uh, you, know, Hilde, you know, Hilde used to say that in the future, some distant future, everyone's going to be gold. You know? <laughs> but, but there's something to that. that, right? Like there's something to that. Like if we think about, well, how did the Westerner get to be so sick? How, you know, because we hear all these stories like Jung talking to Mountain Lake, the Pueblo chief or right. the African medicine man. And right. like the the depiction of, from their perspective, the, the quote unquote white man is always the same. It's like they're always seeking, they're hungry for 
uh, knowledge, they're hungry for experience and all of this, they always come with their hands out, gimme, 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 right? And we hear it over and over again. So what made the Western man, you know, general term, what made the Western man so sick? Well, I think it's because you know, if we go back to that early history of the Romans and Christianity, well, we were, you know, first ones with our traditions taken away from us, or we were killed for them. And so that was an incredible trauma. And so maybe the way of healing is for us to go with our hands out in humility to some of the living traditions and say, look, we've got nothing. We need uh, something to like feed our souls or to like help us become full humans, you know? And so maybe we have to look to these other cultures for our own cultural healing. Yes, I, I've thought about that a lot. I often come out with the yes and no. I, with Orestes, for example, it's very interesting that he taught us, we learned from him, you know, the Afro-Cuban healing tradition, the Santeria. Um, but he also learned from us. He was deeply affected by us. Uh, and, and, and he did some beautiful things that like, like a lot of us in those days were vegetarian and he'd have these big feasts and he'd always make a vegetarian pot. You know, he really opened. And I think that there's, there's like an interchange, like one of the first sweat lodges I ever went to, it was put on by a uh, Micmac, um, Albert Ward, who's recently crossed over, came down from Canada uh, through my colleague, Evan, Evan Trick Monk Pritchard. And, you know, it was a, it was a very traditional sweat lodge and as usual, you know, scheduled to begin at two, then begin to seven and nine, you know, that kind of thing. But I, I wound up talking with one of the elders and he said to me something really interesting. He was, he was complaining to me that uh, he grew up without flush toilets, which is not what I expected to hear. So I, I heard it. One teacher of mine once said, this was the old days, so it was East and West. You know, there's one is like a blind man and one is like a lame man. Like they need each other. Mm. Um, we, need, we need the humility to listen. Um, but we also need to take uh, what we've been given because, um, and this is a really tough question. Like, what do we do with technology? How, you know, what's, where do you stop? Where do you start? Uh, we, I think this is stuff we need to work on. And um yeah, it's 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 a combination of deep humility, but also recognition that hey, I was born here to, and I got to do my thing here, and I'm mm -hmm. not going to stop being a New Yorker, even if I'm you know a shamanic New Yorker. But um, yeah, it's it's a real to me, it's a big koan. And one thing that that helps me in that is to realize how people have been been displaced throughout history, and bring their traditions with them and then they mix with other traditions and yeah. you know the whole afro-cuban thing where they took on the christian saints you know so. yeah i i think that's i mean that too like if you've had exposure to that kind of um syncretism in in so many different cultures it it really helps open you up to that idea of interchange being good for everyone being good for the planet um and so when people you know come out of the woodwork usually online and they say hey you shouldn't be using the word uh, shamanism that's appropriation I, well i go first of all it's an english word created by anthropologists right. it's derived from something but we actually don't know whether it's from shamana or 
the Tungus word shaman, like, you know, you could argue all day of where it comes from. But the fact is, we've got to use language. And let's just try to relax the all the judgment and righteousness a little bit and see, um, you know, where we can learn from each other, where we can grow and heal, because we're in trouble. Yeah, we're in big trouble. When, when people pull that card with me i i go to india and i say would you think that india should not have automobiles because it wasn't invented in india or one of the great indian instruments of kirtan is harmonium which came from the west and they made it their own so i don't see you know one just i do want to get back to one thing you said because i've really worked on this this i my guide here is fritz pearls the founder of gestalt therapy (laughs) Yeah. When people would come to him with so-called problem, he would say, don't go for the why. Where does it come from? How does it? He said, it's, it's futile. All you get is a rationalization. You know, did Western civilization start with Moses? Did it start with Homer? Did it start with Plato? You know, Zoroastria, you know, Buddha, you know, where the whole... So Pearl's um, response was, instead of looking at the why, look at how. Uh, how do you treat water? When I saw a woman in a teepee pray over a bucket of water for an hour and a half, I could never look at water the same way again. How do you treat your your colleagues? How do you treat children? How do you tr- men and women treat each other? The how. And I think what we've done, and I, you've probably heard the term Watiko, you know, the psychic virus of the West. Mm-hmm. My sense of what we've done is we have given up the process because we're mad for the product and we're judging everything by gross national product even if you're a mean-spirited angry unhealthy you know person you produced a lot and we we give people the message from early on achilles like he's the first one i remember that achilles has a choice you can live a long happy fruitful life or you can live a short life and die a hero and everyone will remember your exploits and he picks the he picks the short life, and um, you know Putin saying, "Well, we'll use nukes because you know Russia has been insulted, and it probably has." But the but the idea of I you know it's an insult to me is more significant than blowing up the planet. That's kind of where we've come to. Like we, you know, it's almost I'm almost afraid that we've proved Plato right that democracy is just a mess and can't work. Had I not run into what's this guy named Singer Sanger, the guy who wrote this book called Tribe, and he's talking about democracy. Yeah, Sebastian Younger, that's his. Yeah, name. yeah, Younger, right. He talks about um, how, and I, I'm I'm come to feel this is right that democracy is only possible when you have small groups of people living together who know each other. Mm-hmm. But having 300 million people pull a, a lever who are educated by mass indoctrination that's it, not democracy so can we get back to the small and, and how we do things and how do we treat each other and and um that's my question that um i work with every day because i mean we're trying it right now in my home here like we're living communally and hmm. we're tra- you know and we're experimenting but i do know historically in the 1960s there were communes all over the planet. China, Israel, America, those are the ones I know about. 
None of them lasted. They all failed. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my sense of it is we just weren't ready yet. Maybe we need to incorporate the South. Maybe, but, but hopefully um, we'll be ready to look at how, how can we live differently? And, and um, you know, that's getting off the, the, the military hardware, corporate grid, mass-produced food, destructing of the environment that we call normal. And when people claim to be shamans, or yogis or whatever, and then and then support that kind of life. That's where I get a little bit, you know, riled. I, a woman came to me and I was doing a workshop. She had a yoga studio in South Beach. She had trained a bunch of people. She had eight of them opened up their own yoga studios on my block. I had to go out of business. You know, this is the, you know, this is the old way. And um, you know, it's a to me, we're living in a big question mark. And um, I totally hear you and I agree that we've got to go back to the, you know, listen to the people of wisdom. Uh, one thing I was, I, I probably only do it in fantasy because I've never done it, but I've held this vision for years is to, to create a caravan, like a bus that goes around to holy sites in the North Americas. And at each site to meet with the holders of wisdom, the elders who hold the wisdom of that site and learn from them and do rituals there and honor the land. And, and you know, instead of going to Disney World, you, you know, there are amazing things in this on this land. You know, there's the, the these mounds in Iowa, these serpentine mounds. No one knows what they are. Mm-hmm. I was just at the pyramids down in Yucatan. You know, there's such, you know, we have such an amazing land and so many layers of, of spirit. Have you been, you know, Chaco Canyon, what a mystery this place is. Uh, and um, yeah. even like we, small, small places that nobody writes about, like here, I mean, we've got a lot of uh, Native Americans here, but like you can just go to the park 10 minutes down the road and find petroglyphs wow. from, you know, who knows how long they've been there. And, carvings and, and rock like my god so like but what is this like that's still the sickness right that thinks that we have to go down to the amazon like that's become the new mecca and i guess what i was trying to get to or what was underneath what i was saying when i was talking about the non-locality was more of like that idea that the center is everywhere and the circumference is nowhere like that the mecca is under I your see, feet I wherever see. you oh. find yourself right now because this whole idea that we got to go pilgrimage elsewhere. Well, that's part of killing the planet too. Yep. yep. And some of my frustration as things start to open up post COVID is people who two years ago were saying, well, look, look at the regeneration that's happening within a month of people not traveling all over the globe. And isn't that amazing? And maybe this is the big lesson that COVID is bringing us. As soon as things started to open up, they're off running retreats in Israel and Peru and Jamaica. And, you know, and it's like, oh, my God, you guys are supposed to be the leaders, the, you know. Yeah, I, I hear you, man. I'm, I'm totally down with that. You know, the, the Pacific Northwest poet Gary Snyder once said that the greatest thing anyone could do to change the world is live in one place for 20 years. Oh, I was going to say what came to me the other day was stay home. Stay home. You know, but, I just yeah. wrote a book called Being at Home. Really? Yeah, I'm looking for a publisher. It's it's the next book, and it's all about this experience of staying at home, and why it's why it can be valuable. Oh, but I great. really, what you said really resonates with me. The, the 
the, you know, the, the center is everywhere and the circumference and the locality is everywhere. And I find that is, for me, uh, that is absolutely true. Um, someone once, I once heard someone ask Krishnamurti, the J. Krishnamurti, he said to him, I'm a writer and I want to write, but I don't have perfect knowledge. Uh, should I write or should I wait until I have perfect knowledge? And I love what Krishnamurti said to him. He said, he said, you write, but you write from the absolute integrity about where you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? um, some well, pretty- and like yeah. to, to bring back Fritz Perls for a second, it's like, don't yeah. be a phony. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, and there's some pretty cool people in New York, like, you know, Dharma Mitra, you know, people who've had yoga senses for years who they've really mastered their craft, but they're not pretending to be anything they're not. You know, they're homegrown, they're doing it beautifully. You know, this is one thing that Hilda was very clear about. They offered her so many spiritual names, you know, Swaha Devi, whatever. She said, no, I'm just going to be plain old Hilda. You know, it's just taking that, uh, the, the locality by the horns. You know, in the, in the traditional cultures, your last name was often the locality where you lived. Mm-hmm. You know, you were tied to that. Um, and if you dig down deep enough, um, you find uh, everything. Um, so I have a guy, I got a guy, but maybe you want to put him on your podcast. His name is Skip Shookman. He's in Ojai, California, and he's he's a great permaculturist, like serious. And he, he one summer, he basically re re imagined and revolutionized my backyard uh, with me as his kind of apprentice. And one of the things he did was dig deep into the earth, like 14 feet down, hmm. just to see what's there. And you find all these layers, you know, the, the American, you know, it's harder to see that in America or Canada, maybe easier in Canada. I really noticed it in, when I was in Hawaii. Like when I was in Hawaii, I said, this ain't no America. This, this is a veneer of English street signs. But the energy is very different. And, um, you know, Snyder's early book, Turtle Island, I think said it all. Um, um, we're on Turtle Island. Um, and we we came here as, you know, refugees or visitors. And therefore, we should be like respectful and grateful. Um, and I don't know, I don't know that much about the Canadian history, what they call the octoctone. You know, I think it's a little better than here. But you you listen to oh it's not okay because no. you listen to the halls of the government and they acknowledge they they're willing to acknowledge the quote evils of slavery, yeah. but they never acknowledge the the cultural and physical genocide of native peoples and and the real the ongoing attempts to obliterate beautiful cultures, yeah. and this is you know so what can we do. I heard, you know, Fritz Perls work on the how. That's all I can do. How do I, how do I treat the water? Uh, how do I treat my kid? How, how do I, you know, tr- treat the food? And in the words of one, I consider teacher of mine, Ralph Waldo Emerson, he said, I am defeated every day, but to victory I am born. You know, I, I hold the image of the rainbow, the image of everybody 
together, but not mixed as one color, everyone holding their differences in beauty and beautiful music and clean water and, and respect and celebration and, and, and reopening re our hearts to the medicines of the earth and letting the animals come back into our life. I hold this as I watch the news. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm with you, man. That's that's my my dream too. Uh, it's it's the only way, and I I just have to trust that. And with the how is well to to learn from living traditions, and maybe in some way not appropriate so much the the superficial aspects like the window dressing of it, but like that woman praying to the bucket of water. Well. Have reverence for water because water is life. And I don't have to learn her prayer word for exactly. word for it to be authentic, but I just have to be fucking on my knees in front of that bucket, being reverent that's to that right. bucket of water. Like that's the core of it. And that's be that's underneath superficial yeah. cultural dressing, right? And you know, I, I think that the heart of and I've had this people in India, I've been this and the heart recognizes that. Yeah. You know, I used to, I hang out. Sometimes. The heart knows it. The heart yeah. has no problem yeah. with uh, no problem. being in, you know, it's like the person in their heart is never going to feel not at home in any church, but also doesn't need a church to feel at home. Yeah. My, my colleague, my friend, the late Rabbi Joseph Gelberman used to like, he gave a, I don't know, some talk in a church and he was feeling a little uppity about being a rabbi in a church. And he said to himself, Rabbi Gelberman, what are you doing here? And then he looked up at the altar. He said, Rabbi Jesus, what are you doing here? You know, <laughs> I, I once gave a talk to the cadets at West Point. Don't ask me. I don't know how I got invited to do this. <laughs> but, of course, they wanted to know about Islam. And they were shocked. They didn't know that Islam accepts Jesus, that Islam is part of the Western tradition. They had no clue because they were brought up with these blinders on. And... Um, yeah. Yeah, Islam made a place for everybody. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's so inclusive. Uh, so, yeah, we had a you know one thing that might that helps me one solace. There's a, a interesting uh, gentleman out there named Stephen Byer, mm -hmm. has a very eclectic history, but he has a website called Singing to the Plants, and he talks about people going down to the Amazon and doing like a week long or weekend workshop with plants and expecting that the, ch the plants are going to change their life in a weekend. And he said, this is, just, um, this is just botanical ignorance, that plants have seasonal and yearly cycles, and they, they work that way. And if you're going to work with the plants, you got to work with them. You can't bring them into your, you know, we want it, you know, how much does it cost and how long does it take? Yeah. But on the, on the bright side, I do remember, I hung out for a while at the Shivananda Ashram in Rishikesh, and in the 40s and 50s, Shivananda was sending yoga lessons by mail to these people in Belgium. Mm -hmm. And when they finally visited, when the Indian yogi, when they finally visited them, I think in the mid-60s, they were shocked to see how good these people were. Mm. I thought you were going to say that they had come up with their own weird hybrid Belgian uh, yoga. No, <laughs> they did, but they were, you know, they were acknowledged that, uh, hey, you know, you're doing it right. And... Um, that to me, you know, in the in the in every tradition, like the Western tradition I was born into, you need to get the blessing of the parent of the teacher. Yeah, but they're not they're not naive about that. Like in the in the Hebrew Bible, um, Jacob has to steal it from his brother, 
And then they work, and I know in uh, a, a number of um, you know, shamanic traditions, they actually talk about you have to steal the teaching from the teacher. He's not just going to give it to you. You know, there's, you know and, but yeah. this relationship is so, um, I mean, someone asks, you know, some people ask me sometimes, well, how do you do this? Like, how do you go around your whole life doing this? And the only reason uh, is because of my teacher's. Not because it is great, you know, it's just be that that transmission that they like uh, someone told me Gelberman, Rabbi Gelberman said it very beautifully. He said, when I was eight years old, I knew I was a rabbi. Hmm. He said, but I still had to get somebody to confirm what I'm trying to affirm. Yeah, you need that blessing. You for need sure. a blessing. You need the blessing and um you know that blessing is to me is 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 amazing it's huge and um and maybe that's yeah like that person who's going to call me out online for using the word shamanism i suspect that that person has never had a blessing they've never really um given themselves over to a lineage in order to try to understand it at its roots and uh that might be one of the reasons why I feel empowered to teach yoga in my own way is because that was the blessing from my teachers. I said, look, don't ask anyone to become a Hindu. No, you have to find out what resonates in their heart. So if it's Jesus, well, you give them a Jesus mantra. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful. Um, and that to me is like kind of permissive too, to hear that from a traditional uh, Indian, from a Brahmin family to say, like, look, at its essence, this is universal. Everything else, how we deliver it, the language that we use, that all should be adapted to the individual, to their own culture, in order for it to really resonate with them. You know, I, I see another dynamic at work as well. When people, you know, go crazy because you used this name or said this or because you've been mistreated, and this is no dis disrespect, you're still operating out of the wound. Mm -hmm. And it might be necessary in our culture for people to operate out of the wound and make people aware, hey, do you realize how many people you've killed and how 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 imbalanced the male-female energy is be? You know, that's true. But operating out of the wound will create rebellion, but it will not create a new culture. It will not create reconciliation. So I think the, the challenge is to get the reconciliation of that wound in yourself. And then you can just like, you know, someone who's a former heroin addict has cred. They can work with addicts. You know, they're, they're not going to work with someone who's not been there. Yeah. I, because not just because of Orestes, but because I've been more than once on death's door, I can work with people with serious illness. I, I, I know what I've been there. I have the cred. I'm not afraid of it. I, you know, and, but and that's why, um, you know, that old shamanic tradition where wherever you've been wounded, that's where you can heal. Can we really allow ourselves to go deeply and honor the woundedness? Um, we had a speak of synchronicity of synchronic tradition. Two nights ago, we had a Shivaratri celebration here. Mm -hmm. And we combined the Shivaratri celebration with prayers for the Ukraine. <clears throat> and there was a woman in the circle who was born in Kiev. And she has two like, adolescent children. And she said, she said an amazing thing for me because I never considered it. She said, I'm praying for the people of Ukraine. 
that I'm also praying for the Russians, especially the young Russians, who are millennial Russians, who are like my kids, who are filled with guilt. Mm. And my kids, my kids identify as Russian. They are filled with guilt, <clears throat> you know. And it, but you know that's a step ahead. Uh, in the United States, there's still no guilt over de- decimating Iraq, over decimating Afghanistan. We just go there, you know. And so until we can like really get into our wound and, and say, "My God, like look what we've done," not to live your, not to oh, I'm guilty. But to get to the bottom of that, I think that's where your cred comes from. That's where you can work from. Um, if you've, um, hey, I, you know, in the Bible, you know, Jacob stole the birthright. There's no question about from birth. He, he born holding on to his brother's foot to try to get out first. And, he's, <laughs> and he sells the birthright to his brother. He buys it from his brother for a mess of porridge, you know, kind of, you know, swindles him. And, you know, many years later, he's, he, he hears his brothers coming with a huge army. And what's he going to do? And you know the story. He, he goes to sleep that night with his head in, on a rock in Bethel, and he has a dream that he's wrestling with an angel all night. And in the morning, the angel comes and wounds him on the thigh and says, you know, you're okay, you know. And his brother comes the next day and is expecting a fight, and they embrace each other. And I think the embrace is because he did the work with you. And we have to wrestle with our angels and our demons. There's no way that we can not do that and keep not go off the cliff where we're going. Hallelujah. Yeah. Well, like I suspected, this has just been an incredible conversation. I've, yeah. We got lost in it. I'm looking at the time. I go, oh, my God, uh, we got to wrap up, man. My dog's, right. uh, he's whining okay. at the door. He's yeah. He's telling yeah. us. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, thanks so much. And, you know, I'd love to have you back sometime to talk about, like, just do a deep dive on astrology. And because there's also a lot of this cultural exchange going on in astrology. I mean, there wouldn't be no Western astrology without the East, right? right. And, or, and so there would that, not be any Eastern astrology without the, or the West or the Babylonians. So it's this most syncretic thing. You know, yeah, I'd love to talk to you about hermeticism and Gnosticism and astrology too. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I recognize you as a kindred spirit, and very great to like to meet you. And I it, it keeps, you know, it keeps giving me faith because um, I just see, you know, and I I have a, a a son who's like a generation further. You know, my son's twenty eight, and I see what he's mm. doing, and um, I just see a lot of people doing cool things that only like only one or two people did them. 50 years ago, now it's 100,000 people doing them. So mm. my hope, and I think Charles Eisenstein says it, is that what we're seeing with the Trumps and the Putins of the world is like the last gasp of an order that doesn't work. Oh, God, I hope so. We're both like, we're both saying our prayers on that one for yeah. sure. Yeah. And, you know, like part of my journey, I'm 47. So, yeah, a different generation than your son. But what I see is our generation, we couldn't find an identity back in the 90s. It was like we were called Generation X, like nice. the Nada generation. We were the slackers because we were like really disillusioned with what came out of the 80s, right? And we said we don't want make jobs. We were the you know the anti career people. We gobble right, that right. stuff up, right? right cool. But what I've come to see, and my wife and I talk about this a lot, like what is our role in all of this? And 
what I really believe is that we're a bridge generation mm. because I was born uh, before the internet, but I came of age with the internet in some respects, right? And so I can relate maybe to people of your generation better than people younger than me. Mm. And I can relate to those younger people maybe a little bit better than people of your generation can. So I think we can be a bridge generation. And so part of my job is to find uh, helpful uncles and elders like yourself, uh, learn from them and help share your work with maybe a younger audience or a different audience than you've been exposed to. Uh, because we got to like learn from our own elders too. Like you guys have done a lot of that initial exploration, gone over to India and done all that stuff, gathered up like what works, found out uh, through your own teaching and work with people, like what actually works with Western people, what helps and what, you know, what hurts and all of that. You've sorted a lot of that out. And so we need to draw on that experience because we can't keep remaking things every generation. It will just get nowhere. It's like shoveling water. Yeah. yeah. So thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, very, very wonderful. Really great experience. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, we'll we'll talk soon, I hope. Okay, rock on. (laughs) (laughs) Ciao. The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory, Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, a.k.a. Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.